Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts to expand our appreciation and understanding of the ways that animals are part of our world. To hear other episodes of this show and other informative pet talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The Radio Pet Lady Network also produces the Dog Film Festival, which celebrates the love between dogs and their people and the rescue groups that bring them together. With a generous grant from the Petco Foundation, the festival is traveling to 12 destinations across the country, including East Hampton on August 2nd, and will be back in New York City with the second annual festival October 15th. You can find more information at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. Pouches of their cats in the kitchen, their dogs in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, best feline friend, and all the varieties of canned waruva for cats and little dogs are made with the same care and specifications used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed your pets and their own dogs and rescued kitties Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, for whom the company is named, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I have a delightful, I almost would like to say friend, but she can't be my friend because she lives in Virginia and I love here, Rita Mae Brown and Sneaky Pie Brown. They wrote another Mrs. Murphy mystery. This one's called Tall Tale. Set in the South, it has a lot to do with slavery and the Underground Railroad, and it's so interesting, not to mention a mystery. Then James Rollins is back. He co-wrote, again with Grant Blackwood, another one of these Tucker Wayne novels called Warhawk with that really cool service dog, Kane, a dog I really wish that could come live with me. I need protection. And then Neil Abramson will be here with a novel called Just Life, set in New York, and what if all of our dogs were suddenly quarantined? It's certainly an intriguing book. So three fantastic authors. Rita Mae Brown, how come you have to be in Virginia and I have to be in Vermont? We never get to see each other except for when you write one of your divine books. Well, we're both in beautiful states. And, you know, there's a hunt club in Burlington. Really? Well, that's a long (laughs) hike from me, and I don't ride anymore. And you are so (laughs) determined. You still have dogs, horses, and, and of course, kitty cats are a big part of your life. I, you're the, I just want to remind everyone from the last time you were here that you're the only person I know that's functioning in the modern world. I have a friend who's 80 who refuses to function in the modern world, but you're very high-functioning who doesn't do email. Can you tell the rest of us who are drowning in email, whose eyes are bleeding from staring at devices and doing email, is that something that you ever think, well, maybe I should, it would be quicker or easier, or are you just so grateful every day you don't do it? I'm so grateful. <laughs> How do the rest of us get off the merry-go-round? Yeah, I see. I see what it does to everybody else. And you know, when when people upbraid me for it, I always say, "Hey, it makes your life easier. It doesn't make mine easier." Well said. In fact, it really detracts from being able to have a life. I mean, really, honestly, you do not have a life separate from a device that's constantly nagging at you like seven toddlers. I'm hungry. I'm crabby. I'm 
It's just constantly at you. Well, that's why I love the horses and hounds. Yes. You know, they, yes. They're, they're not given in to false demands. That's absolutely right. Let's talk about Tall Tale. It's a surprising book. It surprised me many, many times. Of course, there's your wonderful dogs and cats who, not frequently, but just at the right times, they are talking to each other and they have comments to make about humans and they get involved in the mystery. But what's really extraordinary to me about the book is how much Southern history is in it. And it's very timely, which I doubt was your intention, because of all these institutions in America that have people after whom they're named or who have statues on their campus. And, oh, my God, they had slaves. But as this book points out, everybody had slaves at one point, nearly everybody, or were in the slave trade one way or another. Can you talk about what inspired you to put that into Tall Tale as part of what's a charming and wonderful story but really is steeped in history, too? Well, you know, I think the past is, is always with us, and I, and I start, started to think I wanted to change the Sneaky Pie Mysteries to the point where an old problem from the past shows up in the present. Right. And, uh, and you need to know the past to solve the mystery in the present. And um, I, I didn't think of slavery per se because everybody had them. New York, Vermont had them. Yes. I mean, everybody yes. did. Uh, it, it was just it was how the, this country was built, but so is every other nation in the world at one time or another, built on slave labor. It's just so close to us because we're so new. But you will be pleased being in Vermont. While we were still not a country, they abolished slavery in 1777. You know, it's funny you should say that. My late husband, who was a late-in-life Vermonter, who had a passion for Vermont that knew no bounds, as born-again anything can be, he often talked about that, first place to abolish slavery. And, of course, there's all sorts of people in the Northeast who look down on the South even to this day as being this backward place or this harsh and horrible place. And not only is it clear in the book, and it's just part of the story. It's nothing hitting anyone over the head with a hammer. Not only were there slaves, but the people dealing in slave trading or free slaves or recapturing slaves, it was it was really pervasive, wasn't it, to a lot of the economy? It was a business. I mean, Boston was built on, on rum, molasses, yes. and tobacco, the yes. slave traders, Commonwealth yes. Avenue, all those big homes and stuff, Brown University. It was just business as usual. Exactly. The questioning of it started, really, uh, in in about the middle of the 18th century, but it didn't really start to pick up speed until, I'd say, the first quarter of the 19th. And um, it's one of those fascinating uh, places or places in our history where you can watch how an idea and a, and a moral stance begins to reach everybody the same way that women the women's vote finally began to reach everybody right and and isn't it amazing and brown university is one that came to mind i think even uh george washington university a few or georgetown various ones where suddenly the students you know you said there was a sea change in thought in the 18th century in the 21st century you have you know students who sadly mostly nowadays students aren't students of much they just know the little bit that they know we don't have i don't think we have a very great deep educational system and and i certainly am a fault for not knowing enough of our own history myself but they're all up in arms oh my god this is totally shocking this person had slaves. But then you'd have to wipe clean the whole history of this country. And I almost feel, and, and Tall Tale makes me feel it, 
that our history matters. We don't want to erase it. We want to say that's who we were and here's who we're becoming. And it's constantly, and, and this is in the book a lot too, we're always evolving. History is always being re, rewritten, right? But we don't want to forget the past. No, we don't. And you brought up a really interesting point, and this is this is what I keep coming back to. It 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 makes me surprised and angry. I do not see African Americans as victims. I see them as triumphant people, people who overcame tremendous obstacles. I'm sick of people being presented as these little weaklings dependent on white largesse. It's That's bull. It is bull because, as a, as a woman who lives in the South and who's written about it so so genuinely, the the Africans who were still slaves, because the book goes between the current time and 1784, were brave and smart and strong, and they and they did find their way to survive and deal with all kinds of things, not the least of which being raped, uh, the women, you know, by the white owners, and finding a way out of there. I, I, you know. I mean, I mean, you're right. I mean, the whole history of this country is extraordinary. I don't care if you're in the middle of Oklahoma, Vermont, or Virginia. We are really there's nobody quite like America. We are we are a strange and wonderful mix. But I, it, it's it's just depressing that today's 19 year old says, "Oh, that was a bad thing that happened," and so we have to knock down the edifice, knock down the name, change the name of a university because somebody who was some great educator with a lot of money or not, I don't know the history of every person whose name is on the door of a, of a university, did something which now, in looking back, is considered heinous. There's, um, I, I want to read, because you don't have your book in front of you, I'm going to read just a couple of little passages, and not to give anyone the idea that the book is totally a history lesson, but I would like to say it it educates you and inspires you while having this wonderful tale set in the present that involves tales. It involves dog tales and cat tales and even horse tales. And, okay. and, and the dogs and the cats and the horses in the historical part that you write about were so much a part of the culture. They were so much there, you know, whether it was horses pulling the phaeton or the cart or something, it, it, it makes you realize, especially in Virginia, that horses have always been integral to life there, which I'm sure is why that's where you're going to always stay. So um, this is a chapter, it doesn't really matter that I said it exactly um, in terms of the story, because it's, it's really some, some factual stuff about slavery and about slaves that I found fantastically interesting. Um, John knew a little bit, as he had learned from an old fellow who kept three slaves back home in Massachusetts. Hello, Massachusetts. Much wealth in Boston derived from the slave trade, from rum and molasses carried from the Caribbean. So many Africans were already enslaved by other tribes. Maybe they brought their music with them, he said. Catherine knew that certain spirituals communicated information between estates. Swing low, sweet chariot meant someone was dying. Could the master or could a slave all, all loved? March on down to the River Jordan meant someone was moving through, hoping for freedom. She paid attention because no one had sung that lately. This would have tipped off others. The news would have filtered to other places. This would endanger Moses and Ailey. These are two characters that are trying to be gotten to freedom. 
Catherine wasn't the only white person to understand the various meanings of spirituals. The constables probably knew more about slave life than the people who owned the slaves, since they were charged with finding runaway slaves. Few white people wanted the job. It was considered low, very low. The only thing lower was actually transporting slaves from Africa. Yet the need for labor was so great in the raw land that captains brought more and more men and women to the new world. Fortunes were made. Many of the men who made them chose to live and retire in seaport towns. Boston proved a most hospitable place, a thriving city, a good port with music, dancing, libraries, and Harvard. Its great appeal drew slavers, traders, and the ever-present and growing number of lawyers. But Providence, New York, and Portsmouth also had their allure. So this is something that uh, explains these very things we're talking. Providence was brown, right? And I'm sure Boston is littered with colleges that were owned by slavers and traders, <laughs> right? I mean, it must. Yes. It, you know, it's, I mean, it's actually funny to a Virginian uh, that the, that the North just won't fess up. Absolutely. You know, at least one can say about modern Germany that the Germans have taken responsibility for what their forebears did for the history. They've apologized, if you will. They acknowledge it. They, they've they dealt with it in the way they deal with it, like people in South Africa have dealt with the horrors that happened there. It, it, to imagine that, that by taking someone's name off, scratching their name off a building or pushing down a statue will somehow do something right. I think what you say is right, is these people triumphed over horrendous situation and and look where they are today as as a as a race or now a mixed race because we're we're mixed up and that's a lot of the story too, isn't it? The mixing of blood. Well it's like my mama said, Oh honey, we're all mixed up like a dog's breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> we are. We are and and that's part of the fun of it, too. Like, every third Virginian will tell you they're descended from Pocahontas. Is now, that right? Now, this is simply not funny. true. So, or unless she made a lot of babies. She must have made herself <laughs> a lot of babies. And the babies made a lot of babies. Yeah, down here we call her Poke. Oh, that's so funny. So, in other words, to be descended from an, an, a Native American, I don't know what the, what the political term correct is nowadays, that's okay, but you wouldn't say, I'm descended from my great-grandfather's slave lady because that's probably more true the high yellow the passing which which is in the book as well yes and that is that is still with us uh to a very marked degree um you look at the the girls that become the homecoming queens and the prom queens they're light they're always light and uh and i am hoping that that changes and we get to the point where and it isn't white people it's everybody doing this um, where you're just beautiful. That's all. Yes. Doesn't really matter. Yes, and and I and you know maybe we're we're inching closer, but it, but that the whole issue of how dark you are is in, is imbued throughout black culture in America and and even in India, countries where people have, or I think even Brazil, where there's darkness, dark to light spectrum. As you get lighter, it's considered more pretty or more attractive or more desirable, and I think this. This book, the, the fact of the, the intermingling of the lives of the slaves and their masters and those trying to help free them and those trying to help harbor them, it, it makes it clear that we really are that true melting pot, that real dog's breakfast mixture, all of us. Well, and, it, and this pays off, of course, in the story in yes. the 21st century. It does. In the most shocking manner. And so oh, clever. I think it's shocking. I think it's, it totally took me by surprise. I mean, I really had to go all the way to the end 
to because I wasn't guessing it. I thought I was guessing it, but I wasn't. And it's very, very believable, and it and it ties together this whole history and current events and what could be uh, sort of plaguing someone, if you will excuse that. I'm not giving anything away by using that word. I hope people. Yeah. Um, even into the modern times. I just want to read another quick little piece of historical that I found fascinating. Um, John will look over Charles's shoulder while his brother-in-law executed swift strokes in minutes, capturing the subject, which is a beautiful church, on paper. Moses said little, but if he saw another person of African descent, they would nod to each other. It wasn't clear who was free and who was not. In Virginia, if a slave rode or walked off the estate, he or she usually carried a small brass square or rectangle, indicating they were on an errand for the master. Often the master's name was engraved on the chit, sometimes a number. As most people knew one another, it may have seemed unnecessary, but rumors abounded of gangs of white men who would steal slaves and freed men only to sell them to plantations farther south or in the opening delta. Sugarcane broke down bodies, especially from the cutting, but the carting and then the burning proved arduous also. Rice, an easier crop in some ways, grew in terrible summer heat that was harder on human bodies than harvesting wheat, corn, or tobacco. A captured man fetched a good price, and many a slave dealer never asked where they came from. That that metal chit might save someone and might not, but if the name on the chit was powerful... I think a thief would think twice. That's so interesting. Is that something you discovered in your research or did or is that a well-known fact this this metal get out of not really get out of jail but don't get stolen? I knew it as a child because when we go to the museums they would have the chips. Oh my. And you and, remembered uh, it? Did you remember it? Did it make an impression on you? Oh yeah, child? very much. Very much. And a former governor, in fact, the only elected black governor in America, Doug Wilder. Doug must be in his 70s now. Uh, an absolutely divine-looking man. Oh, my <laughs> God. Uh, and just great company, just one of those people. You adore him the minute you meet him. Oh, nice. Um, he, you know, he's been trying to start a slave museum, and it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle from a lot of different angles. And he's not doing this in an angry way. Right. It's like, look, we need to, we, we need to know these kind of things. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, uh, but, but, but there were these little vestiges when I was a child because things weren't hidden. There were slaves, there were the blocks still standing in some of the town squares wow. where, you, where you put the slaves for sale up on them so everybody wow. could look at them. Oh, they're all gone now. You know, this is, this is our history. We need to have it in a museum. I wonder, I'm sure you and many other good Virginians are saying we're going to help this happen. History is so important. It's so important to see where we were and how far we've come. And even though there's so much further to go, as there is in so many areas in life, it's so important to know in, in what amount of time things have changed. You know, these huge leaps I mean, in the 1960s, uh, black people couldn't marry white people. 60s, you know, not the not the 1860s, the 1960s. We, we need to know our history so that we can not repeat it, but also be mindful of how far things have come, which I really think Tall Tale makes clear. And isn't it shocking that Nicholas I, the czar of Russia, freed the serfs before we freed the slaves? Absolutely. You know, we're, we're not necessarily at the head of this. Thank you. At the head of this parade. No, we aren't. And and to be proud or shamed by what we did or didn't do, you have to know what it was. And you know, as the centuries or even decades go on, 
to erase all this is is really folly. One of the things that I that I was working with in the book, um, the people today, Harry and her, you know, yes. Susan Tucker, her friends, and all this and that, that they they don't have that they don't necessarily feel guilty. It's just not on their radar screen. They take integration for granted. They take all of these things for granted. Uh, and That's if something right. terrible happens, like Ferguson, yes, th- then they pay attention. But they, they don't have, they're not freighted with race the way older generations were. And when I, this storyline, the one that starts in 1784, you see a whole variety of slave owners as well as slaves. And the man who is the man of these two beautiful daughters, Catherine and Rachel, Ewing Garth, he's a good man. He He's doing the best that he can with what he has. He doesn't think twice about it. Exactly, and, and it's all in the context of what is acceptable at the time. Yeah. Rita, man, I think this book has so much to offer, above and beyond the pleasure of a great yarn and the delight of having dogs and cats and horses as central to a story, which the, most of us listening think they are very central to life. I thank you so much for being here. Thanks to Sneaky Pie Brown. She's such a good kitty. She did such a good job on this one. And, and as she says in the postscript, you did, you did a pretty good job typing yourself. <laughs> thank All you right. so much. It's wonderful to visit with you. Keep up the good work and do not succumb to the evils of the Internet. I think I don't need to encourage you not to, do I? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word with James Rollins and Warhawk. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitty cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, all fish oil is not created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway, where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I am back with James Rollins, who again with Grant Blackwood has done such a cool job of writing one of those books where you think, I'll just read a little before bed, and suddenly it's an hour later, and you're still awake. How do you do that, Jim Rollins? This new book, Warhawk, a Tucker Wayne novel, is just what they call a page-turner. You know how to do this, don't you? I do. I've been building these roller coaster rides uh, for, uh, I think I'm up to my 33rd book. It's just uh, um, it's unbelievable. I just want to say that, that when we started... Uh, right before we started the interview, you said you'd had quite the morning with your Golden Retriever Echo. And I just want people to know that, you know, your compassion and insight to dogs and how they think and feel, although, of course, Kane is a, a dog above and beyond your average, comes from real life. You you live with the, this little girl and she just got stung on her schnoz. Yep. That's one of the problems with springtime is, uh, you know, during my veterinary practice, I had a lot of emergency calls for dogs with swollen faces. And you know, my dog come running in, and there's a big, uh, big swollen snout. So I know what she got into. So I just popped her with some Benadryl, and 
Okay, so that's that's a little well-kept secret, is that Jim Rollins was a veterinarian. I mean, you have led, for a man who's written 33 books, I would have thought, okay, so you started when you were 14, and that makes sense. But you, in <laughs> fact, were out of like a whole veterinary practice. How much does that inform w- the way you think about Cain or any other animal that you put in one of your books, but particularly him? He's such a, a great character, this, this war dog. Well, well, when I decided to sort of shine a spotlight on this, sort of dynamic duo of a, of a military uh, soldier and his military war dog. You know, I, I decided I wanted to write scenes from Kane's point of view, but yes. I didn't want to do a, you know, a Disney version of a dog. I didn't want the dog breaking out into song in the middle <laughs> of the day. You know, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to try to make it you know, as realistic as possible. I didn't want to anthropomorphize him too much. So you know, I was pulling from a veterinary background about animal behavior, about how... Uh, I understand how dogs sort of view the world. I went to Lackland Air Force Base and saw how they were training these dogs. So I tried to take all this sort of background and tried to take my readers and put them into the four paws of that dog so they could sort of experience what it means to be uh, not only a, a dog but a military war dog. Which but is, which is, which is like. a whole nother level, a whole nother level of attentiveness and alertness. There, there was one moment where, I don't know if it's the, if it's the one that I'm asking you, to read, it might be, but what's really cool is that the Kane attacks a bad guy and holds him there while our hero is fighting off the other people, and then, and then you get him to release, and then there's this there's this command I'd never knew existed called "Be happy." Is that right? Do I remember this correctly? Oh, yep, yep, yep. I've never heard that. So then, and then the dog just like chills and wags his tail. When is that taught, and where is that useful? I know where it is here because... It it is taught because basically, especially when uh, out in Iraq and and Kuwait, where I first sort of encountered uh, these... this dynamic duo uh, did a USO tour to Iraq and Kuwait back in the winter of 2010. Oh. And me being a veterinarian, I'm out there and I see these dogs working and I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and talk to these gentlemen, find out what that relationship is like. Yes. And so I, I learned a lot about their dogs. I learned about the commands. And, and uh, when I wrote the first book, uh, Kill Switch with Grant, um, uh, I had a group of handlers that were helping me vet the book, making sure it was accurate. Right. And, uh, you know, I got... To sort of two sides of the of the of the of, of reviews. Uh, readers are going, gosh, can dogs really do this? Can they can they ha- you know follow chains of commands? Can they do everything that you've just done in the kill switch? And then they, what they were asking this was somewhat of a, a doubtful right. Know, uh, you know, uh, and but my review from the handlers were, Jimmy did a great job with Kane, but if anything, I think you're pulling a little bit too much on the reins. Uh, you know, these wow. dogs can actually do more than what you depicted in the kill switch. So that was one of my goals with Warhawk is to expand and, and, and sort of fine-tune exactly what these dogs can do. And, and because sometimes uh, our soldiers out in the field are ambassadors uh, of goodwill, uh, so must be their dogs. And while they, you know, we, we do want them to be alert and be attentive, um, but they also need to be goodwill ambassadors. Uh, if, if you're walking through a village in Iraq and you have this you know, snarling, hiss, you know, right, growling right. monster of a dog, it's going to scare the villagers. It's not going to be a very welcome sight. And that's not nature of dogs in general. They're going to be, you know, once they're, they're taken off duty and told to relax and, and be happy, uh, they're going to go back to just being, a, you know, a, a bouncy, waggy, you know, tongue-licking uh, dog. And that is a good ambassador of goodwill. Well, it's it just extraordinary. It would never have crossed my mind that that would be a command to show you're happy, wag your tail, and relax. It's, it's just incredible, the, the on-off switch of emotion that that level of obedience and that level of picking up on what the human wants 
is what is partly bred into these dogs and then very much trained into them. It, it's the, the whole book feels like that, you know, that there's really a communication that's not fake. It's not Disneyed up. It is the real deal. And I think a lot of us, I, I know you, I think at one point, one of your books, people wrote in and said, I want a dog like that. I'm like, I want a dog like this. Of course, <laughs> you have to spend a lot of time teaching more than sit and actually having them stay for more than 10 milliseconds. I have picked out a couple of things for you to read just because I think it gives a sense of how fast the story moves and how engaging it is. It really feels like binge watching something really good on Netflix, but it doesn't feel like you've gone brain dead, which sometimes happens when you're binge. It's like binge reading in the best sense. It's like more, more. I want more. So to set the scene of the of the first one that I picked is that Tucker, who's our 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 military person. Um, is with Kane in the bushes, right? He's checking out this house. Or, or you'll probably set the scene better than I could. You're the storyteller. Well, Tucker and Kane, they, they're investigating uh, the disappearance of a friend named Sandy. Uh, she's sort of vanished, and Tucker is uh, sent by a mutual friend to go investigate her house to see if there's any, any clues to what might have happened to her. And that's where, uh, that's where this scene starts. Okay. So Tucker grabbed his shoulder pack and climbed out of the car with Kane. Together, they strode toward a driveway, passing along Sandy's front yard, as if just another local walking his dog. Fifty yards from the street rose Sandy's home, a modern two-story French chateau with gabled windows and an attached three-car garage. There was even a tall stone fountain in the front courtyard. Sandy's job definitely paid well. As he reached the driveway, he noted that all the windows were dark. The fountain lay quiet and still. With the street still empty, Tucker took ten quick strides down the driveway, then stopped off into a patch of oak trees. Kane kept to his heels as he dropped to one knee on a thick bed of damp leaves. He dug his night vision monocle from a side pocket of his pack and panned it across the front of the house. He counted four motion-triggered spotlights along the eaves, all evidence that Sandy likely had an alarm system. But was it still operational? Time to find out. Twisting to the side, he powered up Kane's comm system, then donned his headset. He palmed the shepherd's cheek and pointed to the house. Scout, he whispered aloud, then circled a finger in the air. It was a command that Kane knew well, circle and return. Kane took off toward the dark house, running low, already sweeping wide to make a full pass around the grounds. Tucker had worked alongside other military war dogs. He knew their capabilities, but Kane outshone them all. With a tested vocabulary of a thousand words and the comprehension of a hundred hand signals. And while Kane's brain couldn't interpret full sentences, he could string together words and commands to complete a, a linked sequence of commands. Best of all, after working in tandem since Kane was a pup, the pair had grown to read each other beyond any spoken word or motion signal. They had come to trust each other implicitly. Tucker watched proudly as Kane swept over the lawn, a dark arrow through the warm night. He also noted that none of the motion lights activated as the shepherd passed. Systems must be off. Suspicions jangled through him. As Kane vanished around the corner of the garage, Tucker slipped his satellite phone into his hand. He thumbed on the feed from Kane's night vision camera. A bobbling, washed-out image of tree trunks flashing past appeared on the screen. When Kane reached the far side of the house, Tucker touched the microphone on his headset and sent a command to his partner's earpiece. Stop. Kane immediately obeyed, dropping down onto his belly. The shepherd kept his focus and the cameras on the rear of the modern chateau. Tucker stared at the screen for several long breaths. All seemed quiet. Continue, he ordered. Kane pads through the damp grass, angling around bushes and flowers through the deepest shadows. Ears stand tall, swiveling to every noise, the whir of insects, a distant feline hiss, the rumble of a car on a neighboring road. 
His nostrils flare with scents both familiar and strange in his new place. A squirrel darts from his passage, but he ignores the fire to give chase. He remains on the path given to him. He circles around the house and back into the woods out front. A faint breeze carries the tang of familiar sweat. He moves swiftly toward it. His body craves the warmth behind that scent, the promise buried there of pack and home. He finally reaches his partner's side. Fingers find his scruff and welcome him with their touch, with a dig of nails. He leans closer, nudging the other's thigh with his nose, together again. Good boy, Tucker whispered. It's really, it gives such a strong sense of how, I mean, we've sort of all seen in a movie, I guess, or maybe even real footage of, of soldiers in war with their dogs and how these dogs do this and go forward as if, you know, as if they're on a, a string almost and doing exactly what someone wants. But the description in the book is so great because you really get a sense of what it's like to have this four-legged, silent, brilliant creature showing you where you're going. And I guess, you know, in this case, it leads to the beginning of a really cool mystery about what's going on. But of course, in a war zone, it would let the soldiers know if there's a bad guy bad guys, you know, guns, bad things around the corner, and saves lives all the time, right? Right, and that's something I want to try to capture in this book, is, is the duality of yes. the relationship. You know, try to describe both ends of that leash. You know, I kept hearing a phrase over and over again when I was uh, doing my research for this book, a phrase that I heard from many different handlers, uh, so it must be sort of code for them. The phrase is, it runs down the lead. I mean, that yes. the time, up and down that leash that connects the handler to dog, their emotions sort of run up and down that leash, and it binds them together, which is something I want to try to capture in here, is not just, you know, the, the handler's end of that leash, but also the dog's end of that leash, and try to capture that in print. And also, it, which you do brilliantly, and it should make the rest of us realize that when we're walking our own dog on a leash, those sort of leash-related problems, leash aggression, or lack of obedience while on the leash, is coming from us to them and then back to us. It's not something they're doing on their own. So yeah, to that's res- true. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of that issue when people would report when I was in the, in the in the veterinary office. They would explain that you know the dog is very friendly when uh, somebody comes to the house and they're in the house. But you know, if if they're on the leash and and they're walking the dog somewhere else, the dog is very aggressive with people. And, you know, why is that, Doctor Jim? And it's for that very reason. There's a lot of issues with uh, the dogs when they're unattached to leash that they they can read the senses and the emotions of their of their handler through that leash. They feel protective. Uh, they're out of their their familiarity. They're they're on alert, and they they need to express that. And if we don't sort of understand that there's a, an emotional being at the end of that leash that's having an emotional reaction, we might not understand why that aggression happens. Absolutely, and even emotion with no leash involved. I mean, I think that the partnership between this man and dog is so cool in the book. And I think should make us all more mindful of the fact that whatever emotions we're having, a bad day, crabbing at somebody at the phone company on the phone, the dogs pick up on that. They, they need to be told it's okay, don't worry, because otherwise they're going to worry because Kane worries a lot. He's constantly in a state of alertness because that's in his DNA at this point, right? Yeah, when you, when you have a, 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 you know, dogs bond very deeply. There, there's a human-animal bond that, that we were sort of studied in school, and, and that bond, again, goes two ways. You know, yes, you know, we do know that if we pet a cat, our blood pressure goes down. Uh, you know, there's a, a physical sort of uh, reaction that we have to our pets. But it's the other way around, too, is the, the animals have a response to us. They, are, they, they operate, which I try to capture in this book, uh, beyond just the visual. Uh, they have very strong senses, both both hearing and and and, and smelling. I mean, we do know that dogs can like smell cancer and, and right. individuals. 
Uh, so they are experiencing a world very different from ours, which is again something I want to try to capture in, in, in this book. And uh, because of that, they are definitely able to read our emotions very, very well, and they're going to respond to how we respond. If we get guarded, they're going to get guarded. If, yes. If we're having a, you know, a bad day, they're going to know it. Yeah, and we just have to be mindful that we're, we're laying some of our stuff at their feet. I wonder, why did you pick a golden retriever, having had one, and they're just so dear and sweet and, and very connected in a kind sort of way? Did you pick a golden, or did a golden pick you? The Golden picked me. Um, and I've had a whole slew of different dogs. I've had a German Shepherd. I've had uh, two Dalmatians. I had a Dachshund. Wow! And now I've got I've got three Goldens. Oh my! Uh, and they were from a uh, LA uh, Golden Rescue Golden Retriever. Oh, rescue. how uh, wonderful! A veterinary friend of mine uh, knew when my Shepherd passed away that I was looking for a new pet, and there was a a litter that was dumped off with puppy strangles, and the the uh, the breeder panicked, and they dumped the, the litter at the pound, and Golden Retriever rescued them, and that's where I got my kid. Oh, my God. You took three from the same litter? Oh, no, I just took one, but then I fell in love with the breed, and uh-huh. I found other, other you know, Golden That's so funny, I because I, I wound up with Weimaraners, because I went to what was supposedly the Golden Retriever Rescue, which was Friends for Pets in Sunland, California, and I swear there were six Goldens, and they were fronting for 40 Weimaraners. A lot fewer Goldens get given up than Wimes, you know, an, an easier breed to live with. And, uh, and, and I fell in love with the Wyman, and that was the end of that. Do you miss being a veterinarian? Do you often, are you, does it cross your mind, gee, I could still be a veterinarian. Where would, how would my life be different? Is it something that you was hard to miss- give up? It was. I mean, that, and that's one of the things that, you know, people say that writers are naked on the page. When you write, you're, you're, you're putting things on the page that people aren't aware of. And uh, back about maybe seven or eight books into my series, uh, I got a, a, a note from a reader saying, you know, how come we write about here in this series of books, does those, suddenly all your characters seem to have these animal sidekicks, whether it's an orphan jaguar oh, cub or a rescue sh- shepherd. And I realized right about the time that I had stopped practicing full-time, uh, these animals began to creep into my writing. I'll be so, darned. Know, that side of my brain that loves animals, loves medicine, my science is sort of creeping into my writing. And I haven't totally given up my, my profession. I still work with a group that does a, a, a trap and rescue. I mean, trap and... Really? Thing up, For- here, up here in Northern California. Wow. Um, it's called the Sacramento Council of Cats. They trap feral cats in the area. They bring them to the shelter. I spend one Sunday a month for about eight hours spaying and neutering them. So basically all I now do with my veterinary degree is just remove genitalia. Uh, <laughs> But it's what a great a service, not just to the community, but to the cats. You said Sacramento. Is that where you are? Um, you know, I have a home in Sacramento, and then I also have a, a home in, in uh, uh, up near Lake Tahoe. So I'm Wow, nice. The reason, the reason I ask, my ears perk up whenever I hear a town where the Dog Film Festival is coming. So we're going to be in Sacramento. I think it's October 30th. I'm going to find a way to get you there. It would be so wonderful to meet you and have you enjoy the Dog Film Festival as my oh, guest. Oh, I love that. It'd be really fun. That would be so cool. You'll come back on the show before October, and we'll talk about uh, just about this whole way that you've kept animals in your life. I think the fact that you do TNR as as a public service is a fantastic use of your skills, and, and how wonderful that you do that, because it's the only way to keep cats alive in our world. You can't take them to a shelter. There are too many of them. So you keep them safe in a neighborhood and make sure that they don't make lots of little new kitties. That's yep, great. Little, little kitten factories out there. Oh, boy, are they ever. They say that, that what you call it's breed like rabbits, but it's really cats that breed like <laughs> rabbits, right? <laughs> yeah, true. Well, it's, it's a wonderful book, Jim. Such a great book for the summer. I don't like to call something a beach read because it's too big and fat and beautiful of a hardcover book. The library won't let you take that. 
to the beach, so you shouldn't buy it yourself and take it to the beach and ruin it with sand. But it's a great, great story. Warhawk, a Tucker Wayne novel, and I think Grant, Grant Blackwood and you were, do a beautiful job writing together. It's obviously a great partnership. We all have so much to learn and to appreciate about what these dogs and what these teams can do, and now we can just enjoy them in civilian life solving mysteries. It's really a great book. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. It's been a delight. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll right back after this quick word with Neil Abramson and Just Life. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural cat and dog foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes, like Vigor, give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens brings vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. I am back with Neil Abramson and this very cool novel, Just Life. He also wrote another novel called Unsaid, but he's actually a lawyer the rest of the time. Neil, welcome to the show. How do you have time to write such a beautifully woven and written novel and also defend the law or whatever it is you do as a lawyer? Oh, thanks, Tracy. It's always a pleasure to, to talk to you. <laughs> um, you know, you make time for those things that are important to you, and uh, writing about the, the human-animal bond uh, from a fiction perspective is something that's very important to me, so you just squeeze the time when you can. I really admire it because it's so inventive. I mean, this book is so inventive. It's so realistic in presenting a situation that seems impossible or unlikely, and yet not at all. Talk a little bit about what was the genesis of the germ of the idea of what could happen in a city like New York if there was an illness that would that wound up being blamed on first pigeons and squirrels and then dogs. Well, you know, it actually started, uh, I was standing out on a street corner, um, drinking an overpriced cup of coffee. And uh, one of the things that happens if you stand out in a major city uh, uh, and you stand in one place, you see, you certainly see a lot of strange things. But what you also <laughs> see is a lot of people, is a lot of people walking their dogs. Okay. Um, and I was standing there and this was just about the time that there was a resurgence of the fear of SARS. Remember SARS, oh, that, that horrible virus? Oh, yeah, and somebody in New York got it. Didn't a doctor without borders come to New York or a nurse and actually give it to people? Or was that Ebola? Was that was else? Ebola. So SARS was earlier than that, but there was a, there was a concern about a recent, more uh, uh, another outbreak of SARS, this time uh, coming out of the, out of the Middle East. And um, so I'm, I'm standing on the street corner, and I'm, I'm seeing this particular woman with walking down the street with a with a Pomeranian, and she, it's clear that she loves this dog, right? Right. Yes. I mean, the, the the dog is 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 everything to her, and she's talking to it, she's playing with it. But I, you know, I look up from the dog, and I see that the woman is wearing a surgical mask, Ooh. which I assume is in response to. You know that news of of a potential outbreak of a virus, and you know we've all seen that at some point or another, right? We've all yes. seen somebody with a surgical mask on a plane or a train, or a street, and 
And, you know, we, we, we always, I, I don't know about you, but I always get the sense, this, this twinge of uncertainty when I see it, like, like they know something I didn't, that they right, got the memo right. and I yeah, didn't, exactly. um, as if that's going to protect them. And well, then it occurred the to me, thing, as if, right? right, as if, and then it occurred to me, um, you know, what if she was told that the very thing that she was trying to protect herself from was being carried into her house or her dining room table or her bed by the thing that she loved the most, you know, her dog. Right. Uh, what would she do? And, and, and what would her frightened neighbors do if they thought that was the case, true or not? Yes. You know, uh, would compassion lead to sound decision-making or would fear combined with a, with a mob mentality um, result in lives like it did in Spain, you know, when the government euthanized a dog named Excalibur, who was a dog of a nurse who had Ebola, even though there was no evidence the dog was or even could be affected wow, by Wow, I didn't Ebola. even know that. Oh, that's so sad. Or, or in China, where they clubbed thousands of dogs to death because rabies kills many, many people in China. It's out of control. And right. they, you know, that's how, unfortunately, how they executed it. But it was people's owned pets that they were doing it to. Right. And, and you know, if we think that that couldn't happen here... You know, I'm I'm afraid that we are we are sadly mistaken. Um, you know, remember that New Jersey ordered an involuntary quarantine for any medical profession who had come into contact with an Ebola patient, despite having tested negative for Ebola. And and if they're going to confine humans right. without any right. evidence of risk, I mean, is there any doubt that in the heat of the moment and in the ensuing confusion that animals, you know, are are going to take it in the neck? Right. Uh, and, and particularly and if there's a threat. Literally in the neck or in the paw. And, and in the book, the way it's depicted and this idea of a quarantine in Riverside Drive, it, it seems completely logical. And you wind up not thinking, could this happen? You think, whoa, this could happen. Where would I be in this story? How would I handle it? How would I handle it if I had the dog, if I was near the neighborhood? And the, as you say, hysteria, mob, mob reaction is always a trigger hair away, right? Totally. And, and uh, you know, when you think about the effect of fear um, and you think about these emerging zoonotic viruses, viruses that, that are, are transmitted from animals to humans, it's like the perfect storm, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Because they come, a lot of times they're emerging zoonotic viruses, they've mutated or they, they're spreading more rapidly than anybody expected. We don't know what the real cause is. Um, and you can't throw antibiotics at it because it's viral. Antivirals Correct. don't work. There's no time to develop a vaccine. And so the immediate response, and this is, this is just true, the immediate response is you attempt to quarantine the infected animals. And then you, you call the, those who are symptomatic and, and you hope that you've taken care of the problem. Well, and you, that's historically been the response. And, and, and very recently, we had this in Chicago. A canine flu broke out that was deadly to dogs, and there was a lot of concern. The CDC got involved because there was concern it was zoonotic, that it could pass to people. And people were told when they brought their dog to the vet, do not get out of your car or your taxi. Do not go into the vet's office. You are going to contaminate the whole place. They'll come out totally gowned in gowns that they didn't have, by the way, and gloved and masked to help you with your dog and then not spread it to themselves or to other dogs. A friend of mine who's a vet is always very interested in this concept of one health. And I think that's really what we're talking about here. You know, zoonotic, everything could be one health. What's, what's good for the goose or the gander, it's, it's across all species because these things, as you say, mutate. 
One day it's well, a, an avian virus, and then it's suddenly horses or pigs or dogs. And I don't think they want people to be alarmed. But as you point out with the people with the mask, do they know something we don't know, and they just don't want mass, you know, group panic? I think that's totally true. The the other aspect of um, zoonotic viruses that that I think are so scary is is they really are a trigger point for uh, our our fear when it comes to the unknown. And you know the 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 irony is is that these zoonotic viruses which jump to humans are on on one level they're sort of proof of something that you know we always try to argue against not us but but others try to argue against that there's this huge divide between us and them right, right. You know, when you look under the microscope when when you're looking at a virus under a microscope it's it's almost like the virus seems to understand what we refuse to acknowledge and that the wall isn't that big yes and what we what we do to you know our companion animals invariably we end up doing to ourselves and and that that's something that's very difficult I think to to get our heads around, um, particularly when we're talking about something that that could be as big a threat in a metropolitan area, something like a, a zoonotic virus that impacts dogs, and especially the fact that it's metropolitan. I mean, as you point out, Riverside Drive or any concentrated residential neighborhood in New York or any city in the world, there are so many dogs and so much cross contamination and and contact between and amongst those dogs and people. That, I mean, it would be very hard to clean the whole thing up if you felt you needed to, and even that it wouldn't be clear. Why don't you read from the beginning of Chapter 19 and sort of set the scene? This is when a quarantine is being considered for this area where a couple of school children, maybe one school child has died from something that they don't right. quite know what it is. But now there's kind of a question mark about whether it could be a dog. Right. So, so the issue is whether it could be dogs, and if it is, uh, it, the book centers around uh, Samantha Lewis, who's a veterinarian who runs a no-kill animal shelter. Right. Uh, Which is in a lot of trouble. Yes, and, and right. wonderful. It's, it's very nail-bitey. Is she going to survive? And how hard it is in the in the world of rescue to to keep the doors open, to keep the lights on, and to save a life one at a time. It's, that, right. That's very well depicted as well. So in in the panic, a group of dogs are accused of being carriers of the virus, and she and her shelter are in ground zero. And and so she has to reach out to a a bunch of, you know, sort of typical New Yorkers for help and and, and to to join together to to try and save these dogs. So so the the book in in a lot of ways is really about whether compassion can overcome this right. fear. Right. And so in this scene um this is really one of the first scenes where she starts to realize that this really is happening when she starts taking some of these dogs in. And so uh, they are really shelter dogs, they're local dogs from the neighborhood that are own dogs. And the people right. are looking for refuge, really. It's almost like going to a church, you know, during a war and hoping that that will keep you safe. Exactly. So it starts with, uh, need help up here. Sam yelled down from the top of the stairs. The crew from the basement joined Sam in reception just in time to see the first dogs enter the shelter. A Havanese with her elderly woman, a pug with a father and daughter, a Pomeranian with a woman about Sam's age, and a black lab pulling a man in his 20s. With the arrival of the dog, Sam could no longer deny that this really was happening. She tried to channel all her emotions 
exhaustion, fear, anger, and a half dozen others into controlling the situation in the hope this would delay the brewing panic. Luke, start taking the histories. I want to know as much about these animals as we can. Andy, you're in charge of crates and blankets. Let's start up here first until we know what we've got in the basement. Beth, you've got supplies, bowls, food, newspaper. And Greg, you're in charge of everything else. I want to start exams as soon as the dogs are settled. By the end of the first hour, the shelter had received 33 dogs. By the end of the second, the total was 51 and more were coming. The humans doing the drop-offs all looked grim, stealing themselves for a separation of uncertain duration and consequence. They were choosing a path before someone else chose for them, and that was both empowering and terrifying. Some brought their dogs because children lived in their homes or down the hall. Others brought their dogs because they were taking their children out of the zone until the virus was resolved. And still others brought their dogs to the shelter because of swirling rumors that any dog not in an official shelter would eventually be confiscated and that Sam's shelter was going to be the only game in town. Nothing brings out New Yorkers in droves like the phrase space is limited. (laughs) The (laughs) The dogs Sam examined show no obvious signs of disease, only heartbreak. And it always came down to this, pleading, confused, and imploring eyes watching as their human companions backed away. Dogs lunged after the departing owners, whimpering and looking for anything familiar. No amount of soothing words could convince them that their new cages were only temporary. Owners lingered in the reception area, trying to catch glimpses of their beloved creatures after Sam or her staff took them into the back. Some owners brought their children to say goodbye, and these partings were the worst of all. Neither child nor animal understood the why of what was happening, only that it was and that it hurt. It's, it's so well depicted because you realize that could be any of us. I mean, any of us could be in that situation. It's really scary. I mean, it, it feels like a war zone. And as you depicted in the book, there's this quarantined area. People can't walk their dogs out of it. But there are a lot of them right. trying to flee in a car or some other conveyance to get out of town themselves to just be out of whatever this nightmare is. But their dogs aren't allowed to leave. I guess that the best way to contain a contagion is by keeping everybody that might be exposed. As you said, they quarantined those doctors at home or wherever they were. But it's, you know, the movie Contagion, I think, really visually gave a sense of what your book gives a sense of. It doesn't take much for something horrible to spread. Nobody knows the genesis. And people are either dying, like in that movie, or they're in crisis or in the book. I mean, there's children in jeopardy. So it's, it's right. a very real threat. And to those of us that have dogs as family members, it's like, whoa, don't point the finger at us. But, of course, it has to be pointed somewhere. And this could happen, right? No, that, that is true. You know, it's totally true. There's this quest for quick answers because the yes. risks are so high. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, fear, I always think of fear as this great equalizer, right? It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor yep, that's right. or whether you're, uh, you know, uh, whatever color you are. It, it impacts you in the same way. What we fear may be different for all of us, but it, it impacts us in the same way in that it changes how we make our decisions. Yes. It compresses the time frame of our decision making as our hearts beat faster and we begin to sweat and and we begin looking around for a way to stop this terrible feeling that we have. And a lot of times we jump to these answers. We jump to these conclusions because they are the next best thing. And that's always the worry when you have something like 
an emerging zoonotic virus, and, and you know, a lot of other things. I mean, sure. fear is dictating a lot these days. It so, is, absolutely, and, and, and also a mob mentality, where there, yeah. it just you get fueled by a kind of insanity that's like, well, I just got to save my own hide, never mind about anybody else. The other thing that's wonderful about the book is that the characters in it, because it involves a shelter that's, you know, getting by on its last dime and it's going to lose its lease and can't pay its light bill, is that the, the interesting Motley crew of characters you have. They're wonderful. They're very believable. You know, you have this priest who's kind of getting dementia and you have the, the, the lady that has the, the well-off vet clinic that, that is kind of mm-hmm. a, a nemesis. There's wonderful characters and 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 some of the people helping the ragtag bunch that help in the shelter are ragtag, and I think that that's very appropriate. I think a lot of people that get into rescue and shelter work have something in their own lives that is is kind of broken or unraveling, and it makes them feel they can they can make a positive difference. Well, you know, in my experience, and, and I learned this after I said when I had this, uh, you know, I heard from a lot of people, um, and that is that. Um, people who have had things in their lives um, that have been traumatic, you know, they go one of two ways. Either they seal themselves off in the world or they try to live compassionately. And and a lot of the, the folks who are, you know, in these grassroots shelters are truly trying to live compassionate lives. Yes, yes. And, and and it doesn't mean that they don't have problems. It doesn't mean that they don't have issues. It doesn't mean that they don't get angry. But when it comes to you know animals, they really are trying to do the right conscientious thing, and um, yeah, so many of them, particularly no kill shelters, uh, struggle because yeah, and, and also the, the people, cost is huge, enormous, and the and the emotional cost of of being part of a shelter where animals are euthanized is also really high on people, and I think that sometimes what we're trying to fix in ourselves. We, we can turn to animals and see an actual solution to a problem that we're, if it were just to involve humans, it'll never have a happy ending. And you do get a lot of happy endings with pets. I mean, it's sometimes a hard road to get there, but you do right. get that adoption that goes through. You do get that animal that comes in, as happens in the book, you know, really badly hurt and really badly mugged or something. And, and it comes out right. Now, we've run out of time, but this is a delightful book. So good. So interesting and extremely original. I just love your imagination. I, I don't suppose the law requires that much imagination from you. So how great you have a place to bring all of your all of your thoughts. It's wonderful. Just life. Well, it's always great to be with you. I appreciate it. Thank I you so much. I look forward to seeing you in October for the, the second annual Dog Film Festival. I have to make sure that you're there. October yes, 15th. absolutely. Put that in your book because we need to get you there and... And, and get someone to have me talk to you in real life, not just on the radio. Thanks so much. I would love Take that. Care. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Hug your kitties, kiss your pooches, and we'll talk again next week. Bye for now. Bye.